So turn with me in your Bibles to St. John chapter 20. St. John 20, I'm going to be reading verse 1 through 18 in the New Living Translation. And it starts off this way. It says, early on Sunday morning, which meant around here today at 7 o'clock for a 7 o'clock service today. Hallelujah. By the way, we had 95 people in the 7 o'clock service this morning. We had one person saved in the 7 o'clock service this morning. It's almost a miracle, Pastor Stan. Second, second service, we had 514, and we had at least two people saved in the last service. And I'm believing as I'm looking at y'all, there's more of you than there were of them. Hallelujah. So early in the morning, it says, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. She ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. She said, they have taken away the Lord's body out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. Peter and the other disciples started out for the tomb. They were both running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He stooped down and looked in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter arrived and went inside. He also noticed the linen wrappings lying there, while the cloth that had covered Jesus' head was folded up and lying apart from the other wrappings. Then the disciple who had reached the tomb first, kind of rubbed it in, also went in and the saw, and he saw and believed. For until then, they still hadn't understood the scriptures that said Jesus must rise from the dead. Then they went home. Mary was standing outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she stooped and looked in. She saw two white-robed angels, one sitting at the head and this other one at the foot of the place where the body of Jesus had been lying. Dear woman, why are you crying? The angels asked her. Because they have taken away my Lord, she replied, and I don't know where they have put him. She turned to leave and saw someone standing there. It was Jesus. But she didn't recognize him. Dear woman, why are you crying? Jesus asked her, who are you looking for? She thought he was the gardener, sir. She said, if you have taken him away, please tell me where you have put him, and I will go and get him. Mary, Jesus said. She turned to him and cried out, Rabboni, which is in Hebrew for teacher. Don't cling to me, Jesus said, for I haven't yet ascended to the Father. Listen, but go and find my brothers and tell them I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene found the disciples and told them, I have seen the Lord. Then she gave them his message. How many would like to envision and see Jesus in the house today? Amen. Let's welcome as Pastor Austin comes and bring us the word day. Come on, give it up for Pastor Austin. To clarify, Pastor Terry ended his reading with how many of you would like to see the Lord, and then he welcomed me up. (laughs) Those are two unconnected statements, okay? Uh, If if that was the case, you would be sorely disappointed. Um, He is risen. He is risen. The resurrection scene that we just had read to us from the book of John opens with a distressed woman standing at the threshold of an empty grave. The scene and the sight, which has been the source of hope and healing for so many people for so many years, begins with thoughts of vandalism and skepticism. And I wonder, have you ever experienced vandalism before? Something that you value vandalized, maybe... It was a car that was keyed or jewelry that was flushed down the toilet. 
I asked the first service if anyone had experienced that. And the, literally, the only person in the entire room that raised their hand was my mother. <laughs> and I was the vandal in that story as a child. Happened last week, actually. No. Um, or, you know, a family heirloom that became the latest arts and craft project for a toddler or a perfectly good burger that you didn't realize had everything on it until after you got home. And that's a problem because you specifically asked for it to be plain and dry because you still have the palate of an eight-year-old. I just figured it's healthy for me to confess all of my sin to you right now before I continue preaching. It's, (laughs) It's not, but you and I both know that it's not just things that can be vandalized, but people can be too. Can you think of a time whenever your innocence was vandalized? When you realize that lifelong love doesn't always last a lifetime or that good friends aren't always good friends or the year that you realize that what makes Christmas morning so special isn't just the presence under the tree, but it's the presence of the people that you most love dearly being all together until they're not. Or even worse, can you remember a time when you weren't the victim of vandalization, but you were the vandal? When something that you said or something that you did left a wound, left a mark on another person? When the only value that you saw in other people was the value that you could get out of them and from them to advance your desires for lust or greed or pride or your desire to be important in the world? Death, disease, divorce, distrust, disloyalty, all leaving their mark on the masterpiece of God's creation, which is humans. Did you know that you are God's masterpiece? Uh, If you want to see the most magnificent thing that God created, you don't have to go see the Aspen Groves in Colorado in September. You don't have to go to the Golden Coast at sunset. God's most magnificent work is found in the customers you serve, the children you raise, the person sitting next to you, the person you see in the mirror. But it always doesn't, it doesn't always feel like that because there are certainly things that we would change about ourselves. We would lift this or tuck that. We would lose some hair on our ears and put it back on our head. (laughs) Expected a few more amens from that for... That's fine. We would change this about our personality to be more like the person that everyone else likes. We would change this quirk that we have. But despite all of that, you are God's masterpiece. But the aches in our bodies and the pain in our souls tells us that something is out of sorts. It's that feeling that you have when you're sitting in another funeral. And even if you know that the person is going to a better place, there's still this knowing down in your gut that this isn't right, that death shouldn't be part of the human story. Or whenever you see the latest act of injustice on the news. But I'm here to tell you today that that news isn't the only news, that there is good news today. The gospel, the good news isn't just the story of Good Friday and Easter, but it's the story of how God is restoring all of his creation through Christ Jesus. 
in this story begins in the beginning. And out of all of the good and beautiful things he created, God's masterpiece was humans because that was the one thing in all creation that bore his image. He placed them in the garden to rule over creation. But Adam and Eve usurped the rule of God. And instead of listening to God's good word, they listened to the serpent instead. And in this dark moment, it wasn't enough for them to be like God made in his image. No, they wanted to play the part of God determining what is right and wrong and ruling on their own terms. In the aftermath of this moment, sin and death entered the world, but God didn't leave them without hope. In that garden, he makes this interesting promise to them that in the future, there will come a son of Eve, a snake crusher, who will go and defeat evil at its source, but it will come at the cost of his own life, a mutual destruction of sorts. And throughout the whole story, we're on the lookout for this snake crusher, but person after person only disappoint. Turns out that all descendants of Adam and Eve follow in their footsteps and their pattern, a desire not to rule on God's terms, but to rule on our own terms. In our attempts to make things better, we actually only make things worse. It turns out that we're not the master restoration artists that we think we are. But God doesn't give up on his creation. He's committed to work with humans as messed up as we can be. He's committed to work through us to restore it. God chooses Abraham and then God chooses Israel and he gives them the same assignment that he gave to Adam and Eve. And at times they did well and at other times, not so well. But God being faithful was with them even as they were slaves in Egypt, delivering them out of slavery. He was with them even whenever they said, we're tired of God being our king. We want a human king to be like all of the other nations. God was still with them. And God would send prophets to confront Israel on their sin and to also give them a message of hope about the coming Messiah, the one who would rule rightly, the one who would bring good news to the poor, who would open prison doors to those who are bound, the one who would be the snake crushing king. But his people continued to go their own way while they were waiting. And in the meantime, God went quiet after years of deafening silence, an angel appears to a nobody from nowhere named Mary. And he tells her that she is going to bear a child and conceive and that she is to name him Jesus and that he will be the king who will reign on God's behalf as Messiah, that he will be the snake crusher who restores what the enemy has ruined. And that is just what he did. He went around and he rescued people and healed people from all sorts of problems. He invited those who were on the outside to the inside and invited them to a seat at his table. He forgave, saved, healed, set free, and made new. But despite all of the good that he had done, humans being the uh, rebels that we are, predictably, decided that the kingdom of God was a threat to our own kingdoms and that Jesus was better off dead. 
So Jesus was sentenced to death, the worst of deaths, crucifixion upon the cross, being nailed and naked upon that cross, being beaten and bruised to the point that he was humanly unrecognizable. He was crucified, died, and was buried. But on the third day, Mary shows up to an empty grave. Her first thought is that it's been vandalized. No wonder, because that's what us humans know. It's what us humans do, is we are both the recipients and the vandals. So her first thought is someone has vandalized his tomb. And so she goes and she tells two of Jesus's closest followers, Peter and John. And scholars believe that Jesus's disciples were very young men. And there are hints throughout scripture that point to that, uh, the, the reason they believe that. But you don't really have to look any further than this story here because while John is telling the story, of the most significant thing that has ever happened in human history. He takes the time to tell you about him and Peter racing each other, and he has to tell you that he won. And so clearly they're not yet in their 40s because the goal was to win the race, not just survive the race. And they're also not in their 30s because they didn't drive separately. I don't know what it is, but something about turning 30, you're like, you know what, I'll meet you there just in case I need to leave early to go, you know, water my plants or whatever I do. And so they, they arrive at the scene, John winning the race, and they check it out. They inspect it. They look around and uh, it's not entirely clear what they're thinking, uh, but they, they check it out and then they decide to go home. And from what we can tell in the scripture, it seems like John has a clue as to what's happened, that Jesus has in fact been raised from the dead. But if he does believe that, he keeps it to himself. He doesn't share it with Peter or with Mary. And Peter, he's just confused. Um, he's perplexed. He doesn't really know what's going on. And they are at the threshold of the empty grave, the thing that they had been hoping for and waiting for their entire life. And they look around and Jesus didn't show up when they expected him to or how they expected him to. And so they just simply went home. And I wonder if you can find yourself in the stories of these two young men. Uh, maybe you've you hear about Jesus from a friend or family member, and so you show up politely listening to this message that was the same message you heard this time last year or in your grandmother's church growing up. And you show up and you say, God, if, if this thing is real, if this thing is legitimate, you have 12 minutes and 32 seconds, or else I'm just going back to the life that I know in my own way. And I have found myself in their shoes multiple times, even after following Jesus. I go to where I think Jesus should be in scripture and prayer and worship. And I show up looking for Jesus, but Jesus doesn't show up on my timeline. 
He doesn't show up as quickly as I think he should or in the way that I think he would. And so I show up, I check the box, I say, I tried that once, and then I go back to my own way. Sometimes healing, transformation, freedom can happen in a moment. And I love it when that's the case, but oftentimes it happens over a period of time. And whenever we take the mentality of, I tried that once and we just walk away and we go back to the way that things were, we miss out on what God has for us. So they go ahead and go back home, but Mary stays standing outside the grave weeping. Why? Because Jesus wasn't just a teacher or a sage. He was more than just a friend or a mentor. He was her redeemer. As Jesus was going town to town during his public ministry, telling people of the availability of God's kingdom and demonstrating the reality of God's kingdom, a reality in which what God wants done is done. The sick are healed, the lepers are cleansed, the, good, the poor have good news preached to them, and those who are bound set free. As Jesus was going about his public ministry, one day he comes across a woman that was suffering from a sickness that wasn't as obvious as being blind or paralyzed. And even though it wasn't obvious, Jesus saw her. He saw her suffering. You see, sometime between being held as a baby girl in the arms of her father and mother who loved her dearly and would sing over her. And now the woman that stood before Jesus that day, she had experienced the work of the vandal in her life, like we all have in our own ways. And Jesus healed her by delivering her from the seven demons that had been tormenting her mind and her soul. The culprits behind this crime that was committed against this woman and by this woman that seemed to have such a strong grip on her soul that she would never be able to overcome it. That day they had met something even stronger, something superior to themselves. And simply at a word, Jesus spoke and Mary Magdalene was set free. She was restored. And I'm sure that it was difficult for her to believe that Jesus would see her forgive her and heal her. But after she spent time following Jesus, she came to realize that this is exactly the thing that she should expect Jesus to do because it's what he does. But what she didn't expect was what she saw Easter morning. Because as difficult as it was for her to believe that Jesus would see her, it was even more difficult for her to believe that Jesus would leave her. Mustering up the courage to face the fact, she, st she stoops down and she peers into the empty tomb and she sees two angels sitting where Jesus had been laying. And they ask her, why are you crying? She replies, they've taken away my Lord and I don't know where they've put him. And she turns to leave. And as she does, she sees Jesus, but she doesn't recognize him. And as I read that, I wonder how many times am I in a similar place where I'm frantically searching for Jesus, thinking, has he left me? Has he abandoned me? What have I done? What have I not done? And yet he's in my midst the entire time and I just don't have the eyes to see it. And this brings up one of the more annoying things about God's character. 
is that he is way more subtle than I wish he was. I mean, think about what's just happened. To say that Jesus has done something epic would be a gross understatement. Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah, the hope of the world, the king of the cosmos, was brutally murdered upon the Roman cross, nailing our sin and the record of our wrongs against us. He traveled into death and has been raised to new life, disarming rulers and authorities of darkness and shaming them publicly by his victory over the cross. And what does he do? After doing all of that, he shows up in a garden looking more like a landscaper than Lord to a woman who is crying. What do we do when we experience great victories? For Dallas fans, you're gonna have to go back in the memory a little bit, but... Listen, I'm a Mavs fan, we'll always have 2011. Okay, praise God. Dirk, shout out. (laughs) Cowboys fans, (laughs) there's always next year. So what typically happens, let me jog your memory, what typically happens is we shut down city streets and we throw this big parade and we take our victory lap and making sure that everyone has taken notice as to what has happened. And as a firstborn myself, I can attest to the fact that it only counts if everyone's watching. Uh, And it's it's not that there's something wrong with celebrating. In fact, the church could probably use a lot more of it but it's worth noticing what the risen Christ does for his victory lap. He doesn't go into the city square of the most influential city, making sure that there was a strategic marketing plan ahead of him, letting everyone know when and where he would give his public address. No, he comes and after having done all of that, he shows up in a garden, again, looking more like a landscaper than Lord of the cosmos. And he comes and he meets this one woman who has little social clout. And he asks her these questions. Why are you crying? Who are you looking for? And I find it fitting on Easter morning as we approach that same empty tomb to hear the words of Jesus that John records as the first spoken words of the risen Christ to hear those same questions, those same words asked to us today. Why are you crying? What, what's going on that's causing that fear, that shame, that sadness, that anger to well up on the inside of you? And what is it that you're looking for? When Jesus asked Mary these questions, he already knew the answer just like he already knows the answer to your, or he already knows your answers to those questions. But yet he still asks us. Because even though he knows, in asking, he's giving us the opportunity to take those things that trouble us and to place them in his capable hands. So hear those words of Jesus to you this morning. What is it that's troubling you? What is it that you're looking for? Think that there's a shared desire that we all have for what is broken and stained and damaged and ruined in the world to be restored, to be put back right. And that's what Jesus is doing in this moment with Mary. And it's what he desires to do with us this morning. Mary's response 
to the question was, I'm looking for my Lord and I don't know where they've placed him. And Jesus replies with her name saying, Mary. He he spoke her name the way that he had done so many times before. And upon hearing her name spoken by Jesus, her eyes are open and she realizes that it's him that's standing before her. And in Matthew's account, it says that she falls down on her knees and she worships him. Jesus tells her, go and tell the others what you've, what you've seen. What's happening in this moment is restoration. See, at the fall of creation and the vandalization of humanity that occurs in Genesis chapter three, it happened when a woman encountered a serpent in the garden and sought to seize autonomy apart from God by grasping the fruit. The dawn of new creation opens with a woman encountering not a serpent, but a savior in a garden. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve took the fruit, attempting to elevate themselves above God. But here we see Mary not seeking to elevate herself above Jesus, but rather falling down on her knees and embracing his feet and worshiping him as Lord. In Genesis 3, the garden became a grave that unleashed death and sin upon humanity. But here in John chapter 20, the grave is becoming a garden that is releasing salvation and redemption for all who would come. God is restoring his masterpiece and the salvation that is being offered is not something that you can do enough good to deserve it. And it's not something that you can do enough wrong to disqualify yourself to receive it. The salvation that Jesus offers is something that he gives you as a gift. As Paul writes in Ephesians chapter two, he said, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this for it is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done so that none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He, is, he has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. God is restoring creation, starting with his masterpiece. The resurrection vindicated Jesus as God's chosen vessel to restore the world, defeating death, sin, the grave, and the devil with it. The vandal has been disarmed and the vandal has been defeated. And you can be restored. Your life, regardless of all that you have done, regardless of all that has been done to you, your life can be salvaged. And this transformation isn't a new rule book. It's not a new set of required behaviors. It's not a certain set of rules or behaviors that you have to follow. It's not a new program, but rather it is a deep and real transformation at the center of who you are. The New Testament calls it being born again, a new start. How good does that sound? A new start. See, what God is doing in the resurrection of Jesus is he's taking all that is broken, all that is ruined, and he's beginning to restore it. All the work that the vandal has done He's wiping away and washing by his blood. 
Colossians 1.20, Paul writes, all the broken and dislocated pieces of the universe, people and things, animals and atoms, get properly fixed and fit together in vibrant harmonies, all because of his death, his blood that poured down from the cross.